Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and you follow uh, as I read. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they were away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray and give God thanks for his word this morning. Gracious God, we pray once again and thank you for your word today. Lord, as we, as we reflect, Lord, on this grand entrance, Lord, is uh, God, you presented yourself as king Lord, I just pray that today, Lord, we will draw encouragement and comfort and challenge through your word. Father, we thank you that we can have the scriptures, God, to not just reflect back on the historicity, but Lord, let the Holy Spirit apply the word, God, and even today, Lord, to reevaluate if, God, Jesus is king of our hearts today. And so, Lord, we give you thanks that we're gathered here in this place. Thank you for this church body. Thank you for those who purpose to be here this morning. And so, Father, we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate the entrance of Christ into the city of Jerusalem, which was one week before the resurrection, before his resurrection, And today we begin that, what is sometimes referred to as the Passion Week, Holy Week. And as he neared, as he entered into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was beginning that uh, period of time that would lead him ultimately by week's end to Golgotha, the cross. Uh, Jesus, the Bible tells us in Luke 19.10, had come to seek and to save that which was lost, and so that fulfillment of his mission, his purpose for which he has come, we are now seeing the finality of it. So Palm Sunday today, beginning this Passion Week, the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry as he is coming into Friday, this what we traditionally call Good Friday. Some people think, why is it Good Friday. It didn't seem like anything good happened on that Friday. Oh, you don't know the gospel. <laughs> if, you, if you think something 
didn't happen that was good on Good Friday at the cross, then uh, you, you need to refresh yourself or understand the gospel. That was the greatest good that came through that Good Friday. So beginning today is the beginning of the end of the earthly ministry of Christ, the incarnational ministry here on earth. And this morning, what uh, is, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge pastorally when you preach year after year, you preach something on Palm Sunday and Easter and Christmas Eve. You would think those are the easiest messages, but they're not. (laughs) Because, you know, again, you don't want to go back and like, well, I did that 10 years ago, let's pull that. You know, you're like, well, what can we, what can we see afresh? And as I was looking at this, it's, and most of you know this, but just in case some of you are unfamiliar with this, you have four gospel writers, four gospels. The New Testament begins with Matthew and then Mark, Luke, and John. And most people, scholars, believe that Mark was the first record that gave an account of the ministry of Christ, and that the others that would later write their record, Matthew, John, and and Luke, uh, used and had access to Mark's version. And by the way, when you read Mark's gospel, you're really reading the gospel according to Peter, because Mark was Peter's companion. Mark wasn't there. He was not a disciple. So any information he gets, he had to get from his mentor, the apostle Peter. And so each of these gospel writers are writing about the same events, but they all bring to it a little different perspective. Some give some more detail in certain areas, some give less detail in certain areas. And a lot of that has to do with understanding, and this is where a good Bible handbook or study Bible, something that has some notes, this is where this is helpful because you understand who the audience is, and if you understand the audience, uh, some things then will make sense. Uh, Matthew is primarily to a Jewish audience. The other three Gospels are a little bit of a mix. John primarily had a Greek audience in mind. As he, remember, he says at the end of the Gospel of John, these things were written so that you may believe. It was like the Gospel of John was, a, was an evangelistic book to show people that Jesus was the Christ. And so they give a little different perspectives. It would be similar if if there, was a, uh, if there was an accident out on 98. Let's just say an accident. If you, there was an accident up here at the corner and you had various witnesses giving statements to the police, they would be telling the same event of the wreck and what happened, but if you had different eyewitnesses, they more than likely are going to share some details that all of them aren't exactly uh, the same. Well, he was wearing a blue shirt, or it was a blue car. I don't know what color car it was, somebody else said. Was it a Ford or a Chevrolet? Well, I think it was a Ford. Oh, definitely it was a Chevrolet. So you have all these different uh, aspects. Now, the gospel writers, thankfully, they're not writing about discrepancies. They don't contradict each other. But if you're going to have an accurate record, uh, like in a police report, uh, you know, you want to have the perspective of all the eyewitnesses And then you have a whole picture of what happened. You with me? Uh, In fact, one of the telltale signs of something that is not authentic, one of the things that police officers and those of you who worked in law enforcement 
Uh, but I know that you've worked in law enforcement for many years, and one of the things that you immediately notice is that when all the, the witnesses or all the suspects all have the exact same story down to the exact same detail, you're like, well, that sounds a little rehearsed, right? It doesn't sound natural. Well, when you have the gospel writers, they're all writing from different perspectives, all accurate, but they bring something different. So as that relates to uh, Palm Sunday, this morning I want us to look at these four gospel writers and look at how they made a different emphasis on the same event, Palm Sunday, how they uh, gave us some insight that uh, gives us a, a whole picture of the events that happened there in Jerusalem on that day. So the title of today's message is Palm Sunday Perspective. Psalm, uh, Palm Sunday Perspective. I almost said Psalm Sunday. Um, I remember somebody asked me uh, years ago, there was an apartment complex where I used to live in Virginia Beach, and uh, it was called the Palms. And, uh, but they were asking me about where in the Bible is the book of Palms. And I said, you mean the apartment? That's, that's down on Virginia Beach Boulevard. They said, the Palms. No, the Palms in the Bible. I said, you mean the Psalms? Yes, that's it, the Psalms. So anyway, that's free, no charge. Number one, I want you to look at Mark's perspective. And Mark's perspective is on the planning, okay? They all bring a a little something different here. Mark, and I'm taking these out of order for for a little bit of a reason, but Mark, as we read in the opening uh, in just the last uh, few minutes, uh, Mark makes emphasis on the planning around the events. Uh, A lot of times you don't see Jesus necessarily taking an active role in the planning and details of various things the disciples did and in their travels, uh, most, a lot of times he just left that with the disciples, gave them some uh, general instruction, go into the city, buy food, whatever. But here he's taking an active role in the details, in the planning, and it just uh, serves a reminder that this event that is beginning, if you will, in this week, certainly we know it didn't begin here, but in this uh, finality that this final week here is that Jesus is taking, uh, showing us the active role in the planning and supervision of all the arrangements here, and of course in understanding the sovereignty of God, all of these things. Nothing happened by happenstance. Everything happened on purpose and according to God's plan. And so this time uh, we see that as uh, his entrance into the city was divinely planned, Jesus took charge of arranging it. Look at uh, verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 1 and 2, uh, that the scriptures we just read in Mark. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, verse 2, and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt. How did he know there would be a colt there? Well, it shows a little insight into what we call the omniscience of Jesus, meaning he's all-knowing, okay? Again, Jesus is perfectly God, perfectly man, and we see aspects here of his divinity. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. How did he know that? Well, uh, he, he knows. <laughs> uh, and he tells them to untie it 
and bring it, all right? And if anybody says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And so Jesus gives them instruction in saying, I want you to find this colt, and I want you to untie it. You know, as I just thought about that, sometimes when you read Scripture, sometimes things just uh, apply it to you. And I thought, you know, in a way, that, that colt, that donkey, was divinely destined uh, for the purpose of, of the master to be used in that moment there. And whoever was the owner of that uh, gave it for the master's use. And I thought, you know, that's a good reminder that Christ wants us to give things in our life to the master's use, that he expects a giving to be given to him. And he's also looking ahead as he, as he uh, prepares this, this donkey. And just like in this giving, in our giving, sometimes we have to untie that which we have, loosen it up in order to make use of it to the master. Sometimes we've got to do that with our lives, don't we? We've got to untie some things in our life to make use of the master. And so here this donkey has been prepared to be used, and it's all part of the planning that we see that Mark gives us that Jesus was involved in. You know, Jesus is a detail person. He talked about that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless my father knows it. He tells that God knows the hairs on our head. Now, for some of us, that's a little easier than others. But anyway, uh, he knows the very hairs that are on our head. He knows the days that are before us, the days that are marked out before us. So I'm glad that Jesus is a detail person. I'm glad that Jesus is a planner. In fact, the, the Bible says that our salvation was planned before the foundation of the world that was ever laid. That Jesus is not just... We don't see Jesus in the ministry uh, when we read the Gospels. We don't just see him reacting against all this bad events and people trying to kill him. We see Jesus who is in absolute control of all the events that take place because, again, he's in charge of the details. And thank God he's in charge of the detail in saving me. But up until this point... That Jesus, before he entered into the city of Jerusalem, if you're familiar with reading the Gospels, there's several instances where he tells his disciples or maybe tells somebody uh, who was healed by him to basically be quiet. Don't say anything. My time has not yet come. To, to you know, he's not, again, why? Because Jesus has a divine plan and schedule that's right on time down to the nanosecond. You know what a nanosecond is? I don't know, but it sounds, better, it sounds less than a second, right? So, so he's got all the details, but here we see something different. As Jesus is preparing himself, preparing the disciples, he is preparing now to make himself publicly on display, if you will, known as he is presented and receives worship by the crowds. Now, you know, we know those crowds are kind of unreliable, aren't they? And we will see that here in just a minute here. But, in, but this planning of Jesus' death and crucifixion, that the plan of salvation, Jesus said in John 18, 37, when Pilate asked him, so you are a king, and Jesus answered him, you say that I am a king, but Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So again, Mark is just bringing out this planning 
that we see that Jesus is involved in. In Acts 2, when Peter preached that great Pentecost message, that as he stood up, he proclaimed that this Jesus, this same Jesus, he says, this man who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Mark brings out the planning and some of the simplicity of the detail in, in just getting this cult, but it reminds us of the greater plan that God orchestrated, that God supervised, that God predetermined for these events. Jesus didn't just, wasn't just a, a good man that got martyred. Jesus was crucified by the predetermined plan of God and everything down to the final little details of a donkey were predetermined and planned by the Lord. So if you want to know if he's paying attention to your life, he, does, he knows all the details. He's got all the details and he's already got things planned ahead because that's who he is, God of very God. So Mark's perspective, as we look at Palm Sunday, Mark kind of focuses on some details. But John's perspective, the other gospel writer, John's perspective is not on the planning, it's on the people. John 12, 12 through 13 Again, some of the things that are the same, I'm not going to reread, but just read some of those things that are different. In John 12, 12 through 13, speaking of this event, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They heard that Jesus was coming. They came to the feast. John is a crowd watcher. All the others did talk about a crowd, but John gives us some details of this crowd. He said that this crowd came to Jerusalem for the feast. What feast? Well, the Passover feast. And I'm sure you're familiar that Passover, uh, there was probably, I think we asked about seven festivals or feasts that the Jewish uh, tradition kept, but three were three main festivals or three main feasts that were required. You had the Feast of Passover. That's why the crowds are gathering in Jerusalem. Uh, Fifty days after Passover, you would have the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And in the fall calendar, you would have the Feast or Festival of Tabernacles, sometimes called booths, all right? Those were the three main feasts that were required. And all ceremonially clean and able-bodied men were required to come to one of those three feasts. There were some others, but those three main ones that uh, they were required. And Passover, as you uh, know or should be reminded, comes from the events of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Uh, Exodus 12, 23. Uh, For the Lord, will as he's making the the judgment upon uh, Egypt there, and Pharaoh has refused to let the people of God to go and to pursue into the promised land. The Lord says in Exodus 12, 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts of each home, the Lord will pass over the door. Thus, pass over the word, pass over the door. When he sees the blood, you, get, you, think there's any, you think that's just coincidental? You think there's any little prophetic typology going on there? Hello? 
Yeah, 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 yeah of course there is. There, when he sees the blood, what happens? The judgment will pass over. Aren't you thankful for the blood that's applied to our life that when the Lord sees the blood, he passes over? And so that Passover celebration, that's why they are there in Jerusalem. And so the blood of the lambs and the, the animal sacrifices, all of those were previews of coming attractions that prefigured the ultimate Lamb of God. We sang about the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice that God himself would provide. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ is our Passover Lamb. Identifies what was symbolic in the old has been fulfilled in the new. Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb. Old Testament saints, you know, they looked forward to the cross. New Testament, New Covenant saints that we're in, we're looking back to the cross. The cross is the center of God's activity, is the center of what God has done. We look back at the promises of the cross. Old Testament saints look forward to the future promises of the cross. Now in Jerusalem at this time, people estimate that have studied these things, there could be as low as maybe 200,000 people in Jerusalem at this time at the Passover feast, or it could be as high as two and a half million people. Pretty big, right? Pretty big group. And, you know, I'm sure like others, they're probably not much different than us, there were those that were excited to be able to go and worship the Lord and to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, the city of David. But I know also know from human nature that there were those that were probably like, oh gosh, is that time? Man, did that, is it that time again? It seems like we were just there, you know? I mean, oh man, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with the rabbi. We got to do this thing. Let's go and get it over with. You know, did you, you know, is the Motel 6 got any reservation? No, they don't. Oh, where are we going to sleep? You know, we should have thought through. I mean, there was just routine. It was old hat. They're not much different than we are. We come to worship, and some are excited to gather with the saints and the community of believers and to worship God, and others are like, well, okay, here we go again. Let's, let's get it over with. Well, look in uh, John eleven fifty five through 57, again, talking about the Palm Sunday. John, again, gives us some insight. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Verse 56 says, They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast of all, at all? They're, they're looking for Jesus, the, the, this, this one that they've witnessed or heard about. But verse 57 says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest them. And I wonder, Lord, would I have been eager and anticipating to see Jesus? Or would I have been maybe one of those ones that out of fear would have reported his presence to the Pharisees? You know, one indicator of where you would be at back then is where you're at today. Is Jesus precious to you now? Uh, is Jesus, is he, uh, is he king of your life? 
Is your walk with the Lord? Is there an excitement and anticipation? Uh, you know, Jesus entered into that city, and you had some that were yelling Hosanna and praising and waving palm branches. And perhaps there were those that were doing it just to get in on the excitement of what is going on. But I wonder, uh, would we have that same draw to Jesus in our own lives? You know, we mentioned palm branches, and it's interesting because John, we're talking about John here. John's focus on the people, but he also gives us some information. It's only in John's gospel that we learn that these branches were from palm, there were palm branches from palm trees. Palm trees in this age and culture uh, in, uh, in Israel uh, could grow to a height of anywhere from 60 to 100 feet and had long leaves that could be anywhere from 6 to 8 feet long. And in that culture and in that time, palm branches were a symbol of peace and victory. It wasn't just any old branch but it was specifically symbolic of peace and victory. The people were not worshiping, uh, were not just worshiping with these palm branches, but what were they doing? They were expressing their hopes, their beliefs that as Jesus would enter, that this was the Savior. Our hope is fulfilled in Christ, that peace with God has come. But as I said, crowds are unreliable. And if you're not sure about that, just make a little note and read John chapter 6 sometime. And you'll see in that feeding of the 5,000, they went from wanting to make him king to walking away from the king in John chapter 6. And here, this same bunch, many of them that were praising and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the Lord has come, many of them would be yelling within a week, what? Crucify him. Crowds are not always reliable. Where would you be in the crowd? Mark's perspective is on the planning. John is on the people. But look at the writer of Luke. Writer of Luke. Luke was a doctor by profession. He was a Gentile. And he was writing. He wrote what we call the, the Gospel of Luke. We also know he wrote the book of Acts. And look with me in Luke 19, and uh, verse, uh, uh, we're going to look at verse 36, uh, but Luke 19, around verse 28, but verse 28 through uh, 35, he shares much of the same details as the others, but look at verse 36, start in verse 36, and again, Luke's perspective is on the praise or the worship. Verse 36, Luke 19, and as he rode along, they, people along the, the crowd, the route, they spread their cloaks or their coats on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's just some little interesting things of three dimensions of praise that we see here in these few verses. In verse 36, we see that this focus on praise, we see that this praise was physically demonstrative. There was a physical 
response or act. It said they laid their coats or cloaks on the road. Not necessarily any guarantee they're going to get them back. But it was a physical act of demonstration of giving them something or giving something that was sacrificial. Something they had of giving sacrificial as an act of worship. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us in 1315, Hebrews 1315, that we are to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. Praise and worship. It's interesting that it links that word sacrifice. It's something, again, that, that uh, again, we're not working uh, for, to, to earn God's favor, but it's something that we sacrifice. It's something that even in our giving, you know, we talk about giving, financial giving, is an act of worship before the Lord. And often it is a sacrificial giving before the Lord, right? Something that doesn't really cost you anything. Well, that's not really a sacrifice. But when you sacrifice as an act of worship, God is pleased with that. I think about the woman. Don't turn to it, but in Luke chapter 7, if you want to make note of it, remember the woman who's called the sinful woman? And that's kind of a nice way to say that let's say she was a woman of ill repute, we might say, and she had a, a nefarious uh, uh, reputation in the community among the men, and yet Jesus touched her life. And how did, when she entered into that place where, where Jesus was reclining uh, with some higher-ups and, and talking, she entered into that room, and there began to be a little jeering and sneering going on. And you remember she broke that expensive bottle of perfume or ointment at Jesus' feet to show what? Demonstratively an act of worship before the king. And Jesus noted what she had done, the significance of that sacrifice that she did. She could have just said, oh, thank you, Jesus, but she did something that demonstrated her praise and her worship. And then there's a passionate praise in verse 37 as well. A passionate praise. It says they lifted up loud voices. Yeah. Loud voices. They lifted up loud voices to the Lord in worship. You know, uh, there's times to be quiet and reverent. But you know, the Bible talks a lot about making noise. Before the Lord is not just for noise sake. Not just to be noisy. You know, Psalm 150 says, praise him with loud cymbals and praise him with clashing cymbals. Praise him with the, with the timbrel and the dance. All these things are meant as an act of worship that is to be exuberant. And it says that they worshiped him in a loud voice. Interesting verse in Ezra 3.11. It'll be on the screen. Ezra 3.11. That's that book right before Nehemiah. And again, as they, these are about the exiles who returned back to Jerusalem and were allowed to rebuild the, the temple uh, that had been destroyed. And as they dedicated the temple, make note of what Ezra writes in chapter 311 in how they expressed themselves in this time of great celebration and dedication. Ezra 311, it says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. for And this is what they said, quote, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And then it says, All the people shouted with a great shout. 
when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being expressive in worship. You say, well, that's not my personality. Well, let me tell you something. The Lord can change your personality. Used to be, used to be a mean-as-a-snake person, and hopefully you're not anymore. The Lord did that, right? Used to be a crook. Now you're honest. Used to be a big liar. Hopefully you don't lie anymore. Listen, Jesus is in the transformation business. He's not looking for fans. He wants followers. He wants people that aren't afraid. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Right? Notice there's also particular praise. It says in verse 37, it tells us why they praised him. It was for particular, the what? For all the miracles they had seen. Not just heard about, but they've seen. And then it says who? Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes. They were very particular. It wasn't just a general rah-rah, but it was specific that they were praising Jesus. And interesting, in verse 39, Luke is the only one that that, that, uh, the others include it, but it seems that Luke underscores this praise in his perspective. He, He gives us this little detail that is not in the others. And in verse 39 and 40, it says, And some of the Pharisees, again, we see this, in the crowd said to him, teacher, meaning Jesus, they were telling Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They're, they're out of hand. And I love what Jesus said in verse 40. He answered and I say, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, if these worshipers were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, because God will be praised. God will be glorified. And even if inanimate objects of rocks, in fact, the Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare, preach the glory of God. Why were we created? We were created to praise and worship Jesus. You read in the Bible, Jesus was worshipped in many, many settings. When he was born, the response of those who came and brought their gifts was that they fell in worship to this baby, this king. Multitudes followed him and worshipped him. Uh, In fact, there's one when he was uh, in the boat with uh, his disciples and they faced that great storm, right? And where's Jesus? He's down taking a little nap, got his head on the, you know, he's just down there and they come and and, and get him because they're terrified. And he says, oh, ye of little faith. And then after the storm was calmed, Uh, they began to worship him and say, truly, this is the Son of God. Jesus was was born. Jesus exists to receive our worship. And we see this perspective of Luke that he's bringing that out, that even if necessary, heaven forbid, the rocks will declare the glory of the Lord. And by the way, worship is the activity of heaven and all eternity. Revelation 5 verse 13 tells us, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth 
and as such are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, what? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Worship is going to be the activity of eternity. And I could tell y'all are really excited and pumped about that. John MacArthur, in his excellent book on worship called The Ultimate Priority, says this. And I didn't put it on the screen. I should have, but, but just listen. The foundation upon which true worship is based is redemption. The Father and Son have sought to redeem us that we may become worshipers. Jesus said that the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And in John 4, he reveals that the purpose of the seeking, quote, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. John 4, 23. The Father sent Christ to seek and to save for a specific purpose of producing a worshiping people that would glorify him. That was the purpose. So the object of redemption, the blessing, is that you are not going to hell, that uh, you live an abundant life, but the grand object of the redemptive work and finished work of Jesus Christ is that he is making us worshipers that would glorify him. MacArthur says that the central objective for which we are redeemed is not so that we might enjoy all just the, the manifold blessings of God, as wonderful as that is, but the supreme motive in our redemption is not about us receiving anything. The supreme motivation and motive in our redemption is that we might be givers of glory to the Lord. He will be glorified. Luke reminds us, and so our redemption is a gift of God's undeserving grace. And God in His mercy and grace, undeserved, has enabled, like blind Bartimaeus, who was physically healed of his sight, we've been healed of our spiritual blindness. John 3.3 3 says that unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. The work of grace has to precede faith. And so we are like that blind man and that beggar when he was healed in Luke 18, right before the events of Luke's version in 19. It says that he immediately became a follower of Jesus and went about following Jesus, praising God. You see, if you're born again and you're not a worshiper of God. I'm not, see, we focus so much on the mechanics of worship. What type of music, this, that, and the other. Worship, again, in its very fundamental state, is an activity of the heart that, yes, does get expressed in, in our physicality. With our singing, with our clapping, with our raising of hands. Listen, those aren't inventions of the charismatic movement. Those are Bible things. Right? And the last perspective is Matthew. Matthew's perspective 
is on the prophecy. Matthew focuses on the prophecy. Matthew's aim, as I mentioned earlier in the gospel, his audience is primarily Jewish. He's to present Jesus not only as Messiah, but as the Son of God. You can turn over to Matthew 21. Now, don't turn to it, but if you open Matthew in the very beginning, Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus. And you will find that in Matthew 1.1, he tells you the purpose of why he's giving this genealogy is so that you would know in this genealogy of Jesus that Jesus is the son of David. You see, Matthew's purpose is to connect the person of Jesus as the historical fulfillment that Jesus is Messiah. He is the promised one. He is that son of David whose kingdom will have no end. So as you read Matthew, you'll find many times Matthew cites quite a bit of Old Testament scriptures. And Matthew makes it a point for his Jewish audience to say, this happened so the scripture would be fulfilled. This happened so the scripture would be fulfilled. Why? You see, a person who's not Jewish, John's written to a Greek audience. They, they really don't have any basis to understand the Old Testament prophecies. That's not something that's in their, you know, in their background, in their culture. But to a Jew... And, G and Matthew is wanting to, remember Matthew the tax collector, he, you know, uh, that he's wanting to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment as the son of David. And so beginning in Matthew 21, we'll start at verse 2, Jesus said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately, some of the same details, you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Now we see two of them here, the others didn't say that. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This, look at verse 4, what does it say? This took place to what? Fulfill. Fulfill what the prophet spoke. What prophet? Well, if you have a, 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 a reference Bible or something that gives you, you'll find that that is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see what Matthew's doing? He's connecting the dots. This was done. Down to the donkey. He's into the details. And when it comes to the prophetic fulfillment, you've heard me say this and others say this, if the prophetic word that was given to us concerning Jesus' first return were fulfilled literally, why do we think that the prophetic word concerning his second coming will not be fulfilled literally as well. This took place, verse 4, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and he's quoting Zechariah 9.9, 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. John referred to the prophecy, but Matthew is different because he specifically says this is to fulfill. See, John mentions it, but his audience really doesn't care whether, you know, that's not their, their background. But Matthew's purpose is to show that even down to this, this is fulfillment 
of Zechariah 9.9. Fulfillment of prophecy. You know, God has given us His Word to be a sure guide concerning the prophetic Word. The Bible is clear that as events and indicators concerning the return of Christ, and the Bible is clear, Christians differ on timing and events, but one thing they're all in agreement of is Jesus is going to physically and bodily return. I don't know when, but I know I'm one, we're one day closer than we were yesterday, okay? But I don't know when. The Bible says in several places, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, that perilous times will come before His second coming. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 4 that he said, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. There will be great, what, we, what is called apostasy, a departure from the true faith. And we certainly see that today. Paul would write also in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound or wholesome doctrine, but in order to fulfill their own desires, what will they do? They will heap up teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And we certainly see that. But notice what Peter says. This will be on the screen. Just as those who missed the prophetic word in his first coming, certainly there will be those who miss the prophetic word that will be fulfilled in His second coming. Peter helps us here in 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. And he's talking about the second coming. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, patient towards us, patience toward the people of God, not willing that any should perish. Any of those that have been chosen before the foundation of the world would perish in context. That's all he's meaning but that all, all of those that God has chosen will come to repentance, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. May not say in the night there, but your version might, New King James says a thief in the night. What is he saying? Is that the coming of the Lord is going to be sudden. Somebody who's going to rob your house doesn't leave a little sticky note and said, Hi, I'm the neighborhood thief. I'm going to rob you. This Saturday night at 10 o'clock, FYI, Dave, or Bill, whatever the thief, or Sue, I don't know, it could be a Sue. They want to catch you when you least expect it. That's all he's using that phrase, is to say that there's an expectancy, a suddenness in the coming of the Lord. Now here's what I want you to pay attention to. When we talk about the prophecy, the prof those again, Palm Sunday, Matthew helps us so well in connecting that fulfillment, literal fulfillment. But I want you to, because we're like, well, what are we supposed to do? Now that we know the certainty of his second coming, there was a certainty of his first coming, and we live under the certainty of his second coming, how should we live? How, how should we be? What, what should we do? Let's pick it up in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord, as we read, will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And of course, you have to understand that the Lord's going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Down to verse 13. But according to this promise, we, that's us, we are waiting, and that's what we're doing, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That hasn't come yet. Verse 17, what are we to do? He tells us, you, therefore, beloved believers, knowing this beforehand, Here's what you're to do. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. That means be careful and be discerning about who you listen to. What YouTube channels you watch. Because there's a lot of confusion out there. Listen, we don't, I don't make any claim to have the whole truth. But I will say this, this is a safe place to learn the truth of God in this church. And there's some people like little hummingbirds. They spend all their time watching this, watching that, and they don't see, the, the and they're just, they kind of live in this hazy kind of confusion. And then the sad thing is, is when somebody with much more illicit motives that wants to come along and deceptively pull you away into something... That might be more grounded in, in kind of a legalistic, cultish bondage. Well, it's because you didn't do what it says. It says, but be careful that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. If that wasn't a possibility, why would Peter say, be careful that this doesn't happen to you? But then he says what we should be doing. And this ties into what we've said the last few weeks as we concluded 1 John. How are we to act? How are we to respond? What are we to be doing? Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What have we been saying these last few weeks? Pursue sanctification. Pursue godliness. What are you to do? Are you to get yourself some charts and read everything everybody's ever written and to get it down to where you know the day or the hour and the time? Listen, the Bible says that you're not even able to know that. The disciples in Acts 1 wanted to know that. And he, Jesus, in a very nice way, said, it's none of your business. That's reserved to God the Father. And so Peter has spent some time saying, look, God is not delayed. He is an on-time God. But in the, in the midst of this waiting, you pursue growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're really interested in anticipating the return of Jesus, that's what we should be busy about doing. Growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is sanctification. Pursuing godliness. The writer of Hebrews, we're studying Hebrews on Wednesday in 12.14, says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God is returning, Jesus is returning for a pure bride. 
Now, we know our purity is only in Christ, but at the same time, we're to pursue, it says, strive even for holiness. So, Palm Sunday, you're in the crowd. Are you a fan? See, the fans went only as far as maybe they kind of petered out by Thursday and Friday. But there were some followers. You know, we give Peter a hard time, don't we? And he did, you know, betray Jesus. That's kind of a big deal, <laughs> right? Receive forgiveness. But who, who, is with, who, who is witnessing Jesus when he is being beaten and flogged? That Jesus looks at him in the eye, is able to see him eye to eye. Who is there witnessing that? Not these other disciples, it was who? Peter. Recognize the girls, you know. But he was there. You got to give him some credit, right? We're to be worshipers of Jesus. I read a story of a little boy that was sick on Palm Sunday. And he stayed home from church with his mother. His father returned from church holding a palm branch. The little boy was curious and asked, Why do you have that palm branch, Daddy? And the dad said, Well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, and so we got palm branches today. And the little boy said, That's just great. The one Sunday I miss church, I miss Jesus. Listen, I don't want you to miss Jesus. I don't want you to miss Jesus. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Master, as your Savior, don't be looking for some of the big event to be waving a palm branch. He wants worshipers right now. He wants worshipers right now. And it's as simple as accepting Jesus Christ into your life, saying, Jesus, I believe you're the King of kings, you're the Lord of lords, confessing your sin, your brokenness before him. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna, come save me. That's what Hosanna means. And receiving the forgiveness and grace, letting Jesus fill you with his spirit Make, take, take full-time management over your life. Make you, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, a new creation, a new creature. Let Jesus have the contract to your life to be able to manage your life and handle your life and take authority of your life. And you become that one whose heart now has gone from a skeptic to just somebody who admired Jesus. Now you're a worshiper. You love Christ. You love his word. How does that happen? It happens just by starting and saying, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Change me. And you can do that right where you're seated. You don't have to walk down an aisle. You don't have to shake the preacher's hand. You don't have to fill out a card. You don't have to join the church. It's as simple as a simple prayer for Jesus to come into your life. I don't want you to miss Jesus. And don't be satisfied that people around you will miss Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. There's one scripture I want to close with. It's just a reminder that heaven is going to be filled with worshipers. And in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, look at this, it'll be on the screen. An appropriate scripture that culminates in the last book of the Bible. 
And John, witnessing these great events, says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. These are the redeemed ones. They were clothed in white robes, symbolic of their purity by Christ. And what were they doing? They held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Isn't that great? I love that. What were they doing? They were worshiping the Lord Jesus. Don't, don't delay. Be a worshiper of Jesus. Palm Sunday, the beginning of the end in one respects, but the beginning of all eternity in another. Let's pray.